Welcome to Places, Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In this episode, I want to explore how a Black theater festival called The Fire This Time changed career possibilities for dozens of writers, and in doing so, offered theater companies in New York and around the country a wide talent pool of artists they hadn't heard of before. A few decades ago, the scene was sparse for contemporary Black playwrights. Established writers like Lorraine Hansberry and August Wilson were widely produced, and some newer writers like Susan Laurie Parks and Anna DeVere Smith became prominent in the 1990s. But generally, Black playwrights had a harder time getting their work accepted. In 2008, Kelly Gerard, a playwright, gathered a few fellow Black writers to talk about their experiences. They discussed what it was like having companies tell them that their work would be more producible if it hit certain Black themes. And if there was already a Black playwright being produced at a company one year, artistic directors were hesitant to add a second. In this environment, Kelly founded The Fire This Time, a festival to support the work of African and African-American playwrights and help get them off the ground. In 2015, the festival won an Obie Award, which celebrates excellence in off-Broadway theater. And something else started to happen. The writers featured in the festival started to hear yes a lot more from theater companies. Having that first production of their work at the fire this time made the writers more in demand. The festival has helped launch writers who have become prominent, and we'll get to a few in the interview. As Kelly says, the goal was never to attract Black audiences exclusively, but to share the stories of Black writers with all audiences. So what makes the fire this time a success? That's today's episode. But first, something interesting from the intersection of art and finance. When I was a grad student studying theater, I often visited the drama bookshop near Times Square in Manhattan. It offered invaluable resources as I worked on my MFA thesis, and it was a beloved business for people in the arts world. In mid-January, the shop closed its doors due to its staggering rent. But it has found saviors in the creative team from Hamilton, including Lin-Manuel Miranda, director Thomas Kale, producer Jeffrey Seller, and theater owner James Niederlander, who went in together to buy the business and are searching for a new midtown space in which to reopen it. All of them felt indebted to the store, particularly Kale and Miranda, who used to meet in the store to work on their first musical together, In the Heights. Thanks to their fortunes from Hamilton, which brings in about $3 million each week, the team had the finances necessary to buy the business with plans to reopen it this summer. It's an amazing full circle of artistic support. And I have a feeling that the die-hard Hamilton fans will think of the new shop as a commercial destination. And now, here's my interview with Kelly Gerard. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Lonnie. Thanks for having me. So first, congratulations on the fire this time celebrating its 10th anniversary. Thank awesome. you. On the first night of the festival, one of your co-founders gave opening remarks and looking at the crowd said, this is what a theater audience should look like. Our audience uh, did, not all, did not always look like that. Uh, one of the markers of our success for us was to ha have an audience that is a, uh, a a true reflection of the world that we live in. I would say like the first five years, um, our audiences were predominantly black. 
And then over time, we started to see diversity, and not just diversity in um, people who don't identify themselves as of color. You know, that there were also different uh, generations there as well. So I would say in the beginning where we had a lot of young black audience members, uh, we, we started to see a, a, a tilt. There were white people there, Latino people there. We had older people there. We had younger people there. It was a, a real array. And I think that that is a big source of pride for us because just the idea that our stories are for everybody, just by virtue of being human beings, we should be able to relate to each other's stories. Um, black stories are not just for black people. Um, white stories are not just for white people, vice versa. So it is great to to see an audience come and enjoy and see something of themselves, whereas maybe before they would have thought, oh, well, you know, this is, you know, I'm not going to relate to this story. This is a black play. This is a black piece. The lineup that evening, as in, in all of your years, is just really exciting for its diversity of subject matter. And I particularly enjoy how some plays are very specifically racially or culturally themed. This year in particular, there was one about an interracial gay couple. There was one about um, gentrification in a formerly black neighborhood and other topics like that where race is is an identifying theme. And then there were others that are just about a couple navigating their relationship and um, things like that. Talk to me about how in the founding uh, mission of the theater festival, having an emphasis on cultural or social themes was not a prerequisite for the writers. Absolutely. So I think that the the, the festival really, really started because there were so many of us who felt a frustration with our writing have to be having to be identified in that way. That if you are a a black writer, you are writing about something that is totally uh, like like what you said. Like it's about gentrification, or it's a it's about um, it has to have a protest element, or something that is so yeah that is so identifiably black with a capital B. Uh, however, there are many of us who were writing about you know as you saw a a marriage in distress, a relationship in distress, uh, a comedy that takes place or something that happened in a laundromat that we were in in Brooklyn one time. Just uh, recognizing that that, that that Black experience is just as vast as anyone else's experience. So there are things that, yes, are like identifiable specifically to our culture, like what it feels like to have white people gentrifying your neighborhood and, and not having any reverence for something that is a cultural ritual, something that identifies you. So so that range, but all the way to the other end of the spectrum of what everyone experiences in life. Love, loss, heartbreak, everything. Like all of the, that falls under an, an expression. And so I, it's so nice to see that the festival does show that range because that has always been what the festival has been about, to say, hey, we have range. We are just as full of stories as you are. And you may find yourself in some of these stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The title is something I want to ask you about, which is a variation on the title of James Baldwin's famous book, The Fire Next Time. Mm -hmm. I I read that the title of his book supposedly comes from a spiritual that includes the line, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, but fire next time. What does the fire mean to you and what is the... The title symbolize. As, as a side note, there was um, 
um, a collection of essays that were published a couple years ago yeah. uh, by Jasmine Ward, who um, is a great uh, fiction writer, and it has the same uh, the same title. Yeah. Well, so I think for us it was um, more about the fire as in terms of the, the passing of the torch. Mm. It's funny that you mentioned that phrase because uh, when I was when I did my first kind of like mission statement about the fire this time, I actually referenced that that quote and that that came from um, a Negro spiritual. I don't know that we ever like saw it as literally as the the it, it maybe is not in the same context as when James Baldwin was creating that that title, but for us it was just by changing that title slightly, it was just an acknowledgement of what James Baldwin contributed in terms of his reflections and storytellings and what that meant to the black community and what still means to the black community and how we're trying to do the same by cataloging our authentic experiences. Yeah. So it's not like the fire symbolizes a kind of distress. It's more like the fire is the sort of um, like yearning to keep going. Yeah. I I see. It kind of reverses it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. So when you started the festival, what else was like it at the time? What was the landscape like? There wasn't anything like the fire this time. You know, it's funny is I think that there was a collective. I think that there was just something in the air that we were all, like the black community of playwrights at the time. I think we were all just kind of feeling the same frustrations because the year after we founded the fire this time, New Black Fest was founded. The year after New Black Fest was founded, Harlem Nine was founded. And these were all festivals that were really about not only supporting and nurturing uh, as many black playwrights and black stories as they possibly could, but also giving us uh, f- freedom to express ourselves as we, as we wanted to define black expression. So yeah, there, there, really, there really wasn't anything. And I, and I just remember that first meeting that we had uh, in the Red Room. So the first time any of us met to really talk about, so I had the idea for this festival and I think I invited at the time, it was like myself, Germana Toussaint, Derek McFadder, Rada Blank, Pia Wilson. There were a number of us and we just gathered in the Red Room and kind of just talked out our frustrations. We were just like, so why is August Wilson being done again, but there are only X amount of new plays being done. And those X amount of new plays being done by black writers why do those things only talk about this? Mm-hmm. And what if I want to talk about this? And the frustrations of feeling that if your blackness didn't meet a criteria from the industry's perspective, it wasn't, it was almost like not even authentic enough to put on, put on stage. Mm-hmm. Like it has to be of the most serious theme. Right. When the other playwright festivals started, the ones you just mentioned, did those feel derivative? Were they adding a different element to it? Yeah, they're definitely adding a different element. I mean, I know especially Harlem Nine. So they are, as far as I know, are the only, so they do the the uh, 24-hour plays. And uh, they're the only festival that I know of that does that specifically with Black playwrights in New York City. Maybe some more have popped up in the, so they've been around for what, eight years now? Nine? 
but uh, so so they offer something different in terms of the the way that the artists work and they collaborate and just the excitement of a you know a, a, like a forty eight hours yeah. you know you get assigned your your theme and your actors and you literally have to go home overnight and work and so just that whole process and then you know New Black Fest now is actually they're more year round instead of um, the the way that the Fire This Time and Harlem Nine are very specific uh, times of year. And um, New Black Fest is doing, you know, they just, they have their collaboration with The Lark now, and they're doing a lot uh, more readings. So so they're all distinctly different and offer different ways of uh, supporting uh, black storytelling. Yeah. And one thing that stands out with The Fire this time is the very short plays. So you'll have an evening of all 10-minute plays. Mm -hmm. Um, What about that form was appealing to you? Well, that's a really good question. I think about it. Honestly, you're able to showcase more people's work that way. I feel like maybe that was probably my initial response. I also, at the time, was very hungry for a community. We had just come out of Columbia. I did. I felt like I was hearing about all of these playwrights. So at the time, I was hearing about Rada Blank and Marcus Gardley and Katori Hall and all these people. And it's just like, where are they? How do we all get together? Like, how do I be a part of this community? And I feel like the easiest way to make a, a a community of artists is if you can showcase more of those artists. So if I can have, if I can feature seven playwrights as opposed to one, you know, we're, we're all in a room together, we're all, and, and so it, it just lends itself more to being able to, to have more collaborations, to have more community. And I think that that really shows through in, in the festival when you come into, uh, the, the the ten minute program you really f- you feel the, the the warmth that you know people have come here year over year you feel the sense of community um, so that's that's the other thing that you know a uh, a ten minute showcase allows but I also think that it, it also gives you more of a sense if you can showcase more people all the variety of of voices and the variety of storytelling yeah I think also because the festival specifically is a platform for emerging writers. Mm -hmm. These are not people who have been produced again and again and again. Um, They might not have a full-length play under their belt yet. Yeah. And they, but they might have lots of scenes or kinds of work, you know, stuff like they're like pounding away at. Yeah. So it seems like the, the, the bar is like just at a comfortable level for entry for a lot of writers who haven't gotten that that first production. Yeah. So talk to me about people who have been in the festival and now are getting those productions. Katori Hall, you mentioned, had a Broadway play, The Mountaintop. Dominique Morisot uh, became a MacArthur Genius uh, grant winner. Um, what what kind of launch pad um, exists? Oh, my God. It's, it's amazing. I would say that particularly in the past few years, it has been the, the go-to for the industry. The industry has come out uh, in ways that they hadn't when we f- were first founded. And a lot of our playwrights are just literally getting plucked straight out the festival. Um, Jordan Cooper premiered his play, Ain't No Mo, at uh, season eight, season eight of The Fire This Time. And that play is now going up at the public. Mm, so he premiered awesome. the, the 10 minutes of it. It went to, it had a reading at New York Theater Workshop, and now it's going up at the public. Um, I own Lloyd was just at the public. Um, she And she's also, she was writing for uh, Mara Brockakill's new show, Love Is. Uh, Aziza Barnes, who was in, was, was Aziza in season seven, um, I believe 
They are a head writer now on Snowfall. I mean, I, I, it is just, it's phenomenal. I, I honestly, I, I can't even keep track at this point of all of the writers who are either writing for TV or are getting produced all over the place. Um, it's, it's, it's just been such an amazing response that, by the industry. And so it's always exciting every year to see where people are going to land. I mean, uh, Charlie Evan Simpson was in the, the festival last year and her play Behind the Sheet. Is, it's just been extended for the second time. Yeah. And her play Jump, I think, just just premiered somewhere regionally. It's it's, it's really amazing and encouraging to, to see it. So, yeah. Yeah. One thing that um, is really kind of remarkable about the festival and seeing it at the Crane Theater is you have this kind of bare-bones space, not like in an extensive set, you know, like really very minimal. And you have all these complex stories and like really excellent top-notch actors using the most minimal of props and the most mm -hmm. minimal of set devices. And um, this year, actually, there was more in terms of, of sound and lighting, but still like that same chair is the park bench, is the dining table, you know? Yeah. Um, what's the, what are the budget uh, kind of considerations when you are working at the Grand Theater and when the first priority is getting the playwright's work up? Yeah. Budgets. <laughs> okay, so I'm the I'm that type of producer who uh, likes to, no matter how we're doing with our fundraising, I like to keep the focus on the storytelling as much as possible. And I will always respect what the director wants and needs. But I do really appreciate the, the scaled down fact of it. There's been time over the years where we've been approached by larger theater institutions who want the fire this time. And one of the reasons why I love staying at the Crane is because you never lose that sense of, of it being bare bones and just being able to, to, to focus on the, on the words because, you know, there, there isn't very much. You can't, you can't do a lot of fancy stuff in, in the Crane Theater. But I'm actually I'm one of those artists who actually prefers that um, because you've got to do a deeper dive into the text. And sometimes I feel like uh, when, when you move to larger, maybe fancier spaces, it's almost like, you know, putting a fish in it. Like, you know, you'll, if you move to a bigger tank, you'll grow. You'll need more stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe all that stuff is not needed. We're able to provide what is necessary, but I think it still allows us not to um, get tempted by a lot of flashy things, you know. Yeah, yeah. The fact that the festival is about writers seems fitting because you are a writer and you studied playwriting and so on. Um, but I'm really interested in your thoughts about when a director says, I want to cast the play in a more diverse way, I want to have a black lead, I want to have an Asian lead, that kind of thing. Um, so one thing I was noticing recently was the revival of Arthur Miller's All My Sons mm -hmm. uh, Roundabout Theater Company this spring, and the director, Gregory Mosher, stepped out of the production because he wanted to cast um, uh, two black actors. And the Arthur Miller estate said, that's just not how we see the play. We feel like it complicates things for the audience. You can have black actors in other roles, but not in that configuration. Um, and he said, I can't. And he stepped out. And now Jack O'Brien, another Broadway director, is going to be taking over. What do you make of those things when there is 
particularly in a revival when, when people have so many established images of all the different incarnations of years of productions and it's always been white, let's say. Yeah. You know, and I, I remember reading about that one and like that one is so, um, it's so hard to know what the conversation was or, you know, the context of the conversation. Um, because there are other of the plays where they're like, oh, okay, well, we're, you know, we're, you know, for example, the one that you mentioned, I believe, isn't um, Rachel Shafkin directing? The yes, yes. One with the death of a, death of a salesman? Yeah, and a different Arthur Miller play, but also with black uh, actors. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily know how to answer that question except to say, I was in a, a meeting recently Actually, they were pitching this, this, and this was a while ago before uh, it was someone out of Chicago who wanted to do, they wanted to do All My Sons. And they said that they wanted to do the production with a mixed race cast. And uh, I think that maybe they just assumed that I would hear mixed race cast and be like, oh, hey, yeah, that's awesome. But I said, can you explain to me why? Uh, a mixed race cast specifically for this play. And the explanation to me wasn't really uh, sufficient because I didn't feel that they had put in any thought about it beyond they're just wanting it to be mixed race. And, and, I, f and I feel that there has to be the intention of that. I, I need a better answer than, oh, because we want it to be diverse. Because if you want, if you just want it to be diverse and you haven't really thought about um, how how the play can resonate in a different way or resonate in a new way, if you make that 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 casting diverse, it's it's not it's not a good enough answer. So, for example, at the Sheen Center last year, Bedlam did Pygmalion, and they did Pygmalion with um, uh, Eliza was um, of Indian descent, and and so and her father w was Indian. And it, it, seeing that production, I thought it was so brilliant. It was so brilliant to have a woman of color, and it resonated in a totally new way. And that was one of those instances where I was just like, they made this new and alive and relatable because, because they, they recognized that there was something in this play where more could be said by adding this. I, I do think that our that, that the, the work that we love can be elevated and can be put into a new context by opening up our um, horizons to who who can play that. Um, but I but I also think that whoever is suggesting that make sure that it's not like fetishizing it in some way that like oh you know it's like you know oh we're we're doing this with a mixed race cast because. Mm -hmm. Isn't this going to look neat? We'll get people into the door, you know, because they've never seen this with, uh, you know. So I think it's it's really about intention. And so it's, it's, it's very difficult for me to speak specifically to that because I have no idea the context of that, yeah. like why they would say, oh, this one is okay, and then, but this one is is not. And and we don't, we, it, we don't think it makes sense in this way. So that was a very long answer. <laughs> Sorry. Do you know that I want to hear? Mm. Do you feel like revivals just automatically complicate the topic because of their of, of because they're old? No. 
I don't think so. I mean, and again, I think it, you have to take it um, uh, uh, one, like each each play, you know, it's got to be on a case-by-case basis, you know. Um, I don't, um, no, I, I, I mean, I, I do think that the plays that we, that we know and love can, can be um, seen in a new and different light by, by broadening our, our horizons of it. It's also like it's a it's a tricky thing too because I think to myself um, like I love cabaret, love that musical. It's one of my favorite musicals of all time. But I relate it to that musical specifically the 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 song with um, with the gorilla, you know, the, you know, and the ending. He said, you know, it's like um, she wouldn't look Jewish at all, and I was and that's that still chills me to the bone. But there was something like there's something in that that like I. I relate to as a woman of color that I relate to as, you know, um, and, uh, there's something very minstrel, minstrelly about that whole thing. So then you say to yourself, okay, like I would love to see cabaret with people of color, but how do you then elevate that, that scene in a way that is not at the same time, you know, do you, you know, would you have a black person dancing with a gorilla? What would that mean? You have to put that into context. Mm -hmm. You have to, you know, um, so it's a it, so it's a it's a very it requires a lot to do that. It requires a lot of thought um, to do that, and I and I don't think that that means that we shouldn't. Attention has to be uh, paid to it if you're going to do it to do it properly and 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 take responsibility for whatever decisions that you make. Right, right, and it's certainly very different than uh, say Norm Lewis stepping into the role of the Phantom on Broadway where there's been so many phantoms and now Norm Lewis is a great singer too and why not have him do the phantom? Um, it really is so different than having a play where the the themes um, do shift depending on an audience's association mm-hmm. or what a historical uh, context would be. And I think that's what, without knowing the very specifics, I think that's what the Miller estate was was getting at, that they thought that the historical elements would change a narrative um, in a way that it wouldn't for Death of a Salesman, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting discussion. I'm curious about your work as a playwright yourself and how that's been impacted by your work as a producer. Now, knowing the elements of uh, all the different um, facets that go into the pr- producing a play besides Besides the writing of it, you know, the budget certainly yeah. and the casting and directing and so on, uh, the space and the ticket sales and all that. How has producing The Fire this time impacted you as a playwright? The producing side of it uh, has actually challenged me as a writer because whereas I, I may start a, in the past, I may have started to play with like six characters. I think to myself, can I do this in four Three, two, and uh, it's much more difficult that way. But it makes it forces me to trim the fat. What am I actually trying to get at saying? And what really doesn't need to be said? What really doesn't need to to happen? It allows me before I even sit down to the table to write. I have kind of gotten myself down to the to the nuts and bolts of it. What does this character want? What am I expressing? And how does how do they do that? So it's it's really helped me in in that way, which is that's the hardest work for me, and so so it just it just helps me trim the fat much sooner than uh, if I would have allowed myself to do ten characters 
And then throughout, you know, after X amount of pages of dialogue, I got down to, oh, this is what I really want to say. We all know that productions cost, Mm -hmm. you know? So if I can do, and in fact, when I did this past summer, when I put my play up, The Stretch of My Pillar, that was my biggest cast was six characters. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) that's a lot of characters, you know? Um, But each one of those pieces actually started as their own piece and each one was contained to two characters. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's definitely made me a much better writer in terms of the, the, the economy of words and characters and mm-hmm. just getting at the thing that I want to say, because I know that it's going to be much more difficult to sell a play that's got X amount of characters. Yeah. It was so cool seeing the stretch of Montpelier because you're a writer from Louisiana and you've spoken about its impact on your life and it's definitely like a formative place to grow up and to see it, I've never actually been there and it's, um, it was just, just so illuminating seeing the, this like sort of country road that you created, um, and the houses off this road and you're sort of not quite sure where you are, uh, in relation to society. Cause it's sort of a, like a, a distance from any like market or even traffic light per se. Um, but these, these, three different homes that are, exist on this road in, in Louisiana um, were so vivid. And I felt like I could sort of visualize it in, in its realness. Um, talk to me about the process of making a formative childhood memory part of an artistic process. Yeah. Um. Actually, I mean, thank you, first of all, for your for your words. And it makes me feel so wonderful as a writer that you felt that you really experienced something that is so important to me, which is my home. Uh, Louisianians uh, take so much pride in the place that we live in and um, and they're, 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 and and the culture and and the things that tie us there. so so that makes me very happy to say that you were able to experience a little bit of that. That means that I partially did my job. <laughs> um, I pretty much, anytime I sit down to write, I am uh, revisiting a specific space from my childhood. Sometimes when I start a play, for myself, I have to write very specific stage directions because I am reimagining the space as I'm writing it, down to the the small things like... Um, Oh, uh, there, there is a um, in in this this window of this house, there is a card cardboard uh, in the window because this happened here. Um, this is what it smells like. This is what it feels like. I have to I have to put myself back there in as much detail as possible. So that grounds me before I can even write one word, and that's normally my my process uh, for wherever the pieces is going to be set. I really need to, 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 to remember everything about it, the smell, the sounds, maybe even what was playing on the television at the time, you know? So I rely a lot on that, um, that memory, but those th- that is actually one thing I'll say about myself is that I have a really excellent memory. I didn't remember everything down to details to down to the way that things smell. And so I feel like, uh, get, Perhaps that's why it comes out in, in my writing because I pay so much attention to make sure that you know that, that you're there too, 
that you experience it, everything. You hear those mosquitoes buzzing, like you everything. And the, 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 your director was also from Louisiana. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what, what did he get that you didn't have to explain? Oh, my God. Just the, the nuances of, of Louisianians. You know, that when – even just the, the way that uh, someone like Ruby talks, when um, Ruby is actually insulting you, but she says it with the – in the nicest way – that there's these little nuances that you miss, like, you know, or, or like you, you might miss, but that we know. Like when when a older white woman says, oh, you know, look at that, that, that pretty little black girl with her, and look at her, isn't her hair so nice and neat? That's an insult. That's actually incredibly racist. <laughs> but it doesn't uh, come off that way because of the way that it, it's said. It's so slight, you wouldn't even catch it. Mm-hmm. But Andrew knows that because mm-hmm. we both grew up in that, mm-hmm. you know. So he just got – there was just the language that he did not I – did, I didn't have to teach him. He just knew it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the – there's a, a, a missing character who you never see but who was spoken about a lot who is um, a doctor who kind of – not like got out per se but like um, – became um, successful and and well-known in his field and so on and kind of um, like rose out of that country town to sort of more prominence. Mm-hmm. What does him coming back mean and why is he never seen? Um, well, you will see him, dun-dun-dun, oh. on the play, play that I'm working on right <laughs> now for uh, the Atlantic Theater Commission. Um, you know... Uh, so this is so so that play the stretch of Montpelier was 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 based on a lot of fact um, that 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 was my father's mother, and so the doctor Tyrone is my father, and you know both of my parents just grew up in extreme poverty. You know a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that I'm only one generation out of the cotton fields. Both mm-hmm. of my parents pick cotton. Um, for my both of my parents to be able to come out of that type of poverty um, is uh, is extraordinary. And I think that I've, I forget that sometimes because my parents gave us such a wonderful life that I, that, uh, you know, I, f- I forget how hard they had to work to come out of that. But true to Louisianians, you know, we never forget where we, we come from. So the importance of him going back, revisiting, taking care of his mother, um, that's a that's a trait about our you know our the Cajun Creole culture. We don't forget, you know. Um, it's a so it's, it's so it's so it was impo- it was important to me, but it was also the reality of my childhood. We always went back to my to my grandmother's house. We were always there for her, you know. Uh, so yeah. Maybe as a last question, what is your hope for the art form generally through this kind of platform you've created with the festival? If we started relating more to each other's stories, human to human, I think that we could finally start to make some headway with some of the lies about race that this country was founded on. And that's where my hope lies, because story and storytelling is so powerful and is capable of doing that. Um, And I think that we, um, as a country, really need to come come to terms with, with... the, the myth of race and the fact that, you know, race is here because we needed somebody to, to be less. We needed a slavery, a slave class. You know, we couldn't have that if somebody didn't feel better than someone else. 
And, um, but we have perpetuated that. And um, by convincing ourselves that we are all that different from each other. Then when you come to something like the fire this time and you sit down as a white person and you see, you, you feel the pain of a marriage that's falling apart when you're watching on a stage and it's two black people, you know, there we've, we've connected, you know? So that, that, is, that is my hope uh, that the power of storytelling will continue to do that and uh, bring us together in this country that's, you know, you know the political times we're in. I don't want to, you know, go down that road. But. Well, I just wanted to end with another James Baldwin quote, which is, those who say it can't be done are usually interrupted by others doing it. And I wanted to commend you on being someone who does it. Oh, thank you, Lonnie. Pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crab. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.